turn to Hebrews chapter 12, where we learned last week in our uh, celebration of Easter that you and I, in fact, all people are a part of a race. We're all running a race. And the question is, are we running it well? Are we running it for the right reasons and towards the right person? Or are we simply running in vain? And the Bible here in Hebrews chapter 12 continues this motif of this race. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of races. There are sprints, there are uh, short distance races, there are also long ones. And the longest race is the marathon, 26.2 miles of uh, arduous and uh, very difficult running. Throughout that race, at numerous times, a runner will want to give up and give in. Now, I cannot speak, and I know it surprises you by my physique, that I've not run a marathon before. But I've read a lot about marathons, and it just tells me I don't want to run a marathon anytime in any uh, foreseeable future. But the question that is asked of marathon runners is always, which mile is the hardest during a marathon? And before I got to the answer and share the answer with you, you would think it would be maybe at the beginning or the end of the race. At the beginning, you've run a couple miles, and it's just not working for you. It's just not maybe what you thought it was going to be. And you look with great fear and trepidation of all the miles you have to go. Maybe it's at the end of the race. The end of the race where you've spent all the energy and all the ability that you have has been left miles behind you and you've still got a handful of miles to go, maybe that's where it's at. Runners tell us that the miles where most people quit is between about 17 and 21, miles 17 through 21. And not only is that a fact, but the organizers of a marathon set up based on that. If you were to go and watch like the Chicago or Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon, you will see a whole lot more tents, uh, personnel for health and safety at miles 17 through 21 than you would at the beginning or the end of the marathon. And the reason why, as studies have shown, about just beyond halfway, people start growing tired and they become weary of running, and they give up, and they step off the track. It's been said this about running on a marathon. At mile 20, you thought you were dead. At mile 22, you wished you were dead. At mile 24, you knew you were dead. But at mile 26.2, you realized because you had become too tough to kill. I didn't ask this in the first two services. How many have run marathons? It's a great chance to brag. How many have run marathons in my kind of church? One person. One person. One. Is there another one? Okay, two people. They're coming in three. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, make sure you greet them afterwards. Yeah, give them a hand for finishing the marathon. Now, I didn't ask that. I said, did you run a marathon? I didn't say, did you finish? Everybody finish? Okay, they held their hand up. Yes, we finished. Well, here's the thing. The spiritual life, the life of a Christian is a marathon. For some of us, we wish it was a short sprint. For we, believe, we wish it was a short distance. But the Bible says it is this grueling race, this long race, that at periods in time, you're going to want to quit. You're going to want to give up. Your injuries and the sorrows and the troubles and tribulations that you face are going to be more than what you are willing to handle. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of marathon runners. They have been running the Christian race. They've been running the race marked out for them, but now they've grown tired. 
They've grown weary. They've seen a lot of their fellow runners step off the roadway, step off the track, and, and just quit. And so the writer starts in Hebrews chapter 12, and he gives us this incredible picture of this great cloud of witnesses. And they're cheering you on, these Old Testament men and women of faith who have finished their race and now are rooting for you to finish the race. And then the author says, I want you to focus your eyes on Jesus because he's the author and perfecter of the race. He finished the race, and what he received as a result was he got to sit at the right hand of the throne of God. And then, in verses 3 through 17, he tells us how we are going to run like Jesus. Now, I got to be honest with you, when I looked at this text, and maybe it was coming off of Easter, I had a lot of difficulty figuring out how I was going to teach this text to you because it wasn't making sense to me. I'll just be honest with you. I'm reading and going, okay, Lord, what are you wanting to teach us in this? And how does this passage work with regards to this race we're running? And it didn't dawn on me until the middle part of this week how I believe the Lord uh, is wanting us to glean from this. And to do so, we've got to look at this text a little differently. What we're going to do is we're going to start at the end of the text and then go back to the top or the beginning of our text, and then we're going to work our way down. And the reason why is I think what the author's trying to do is to help us so that we would run the race well, even when we feel like we're hitting the wall. So to do that, there's a couple things we need to do. Number one, we need to look to some examples that we need to remember. There are some examples that we need to remember. Let's look at the end of our passage. And again, let's start at the end and work our way back to the top. In verse, And we're introduced, let's start with this. We are introduced with two people in this text. Jesus, at the beginning of the text, and we'll talk about him in a moment. And then at the end of the text, Esau. Now, for the writer, he knows that the people that he's writing to, these Hebrew audience that he's been writing to in this first century letter, they know all about Esau. But some of you may not know Esau, and so let me help you understand who Esau is and why it's so important. So notice at the end of the text, it tells us that we are not to uh, be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So we get this example. And what the author is wanting to do is he's wanting to declare a truth. And the truth is this, don't run your race like Esau. Well, who is Esau? Esau is one of the twin sons of the patriarch Isaac. So Abraham had Isaac. Isaac then had Esau, who was born first, and Jacob, who was second. These two twin boys in Genesis 25, we learn a lot about uh, Jacob and Esau. They fought with one another, even within the womb. They were wrestling with one another. And there's always this competition, always this thing going on. Now, Esau, as the firstborn, was given all the rights and privileges, and all of the possessions of his father, um, Isaac. So when Isaac would die, everything that Isaac had would go to the firstborn. That was uh, the blessing. That was the birthright of the oldest son. But something happens that Esau forfeits all that was to be received upon his dad's death. He gives it away. 
We've got to look to Genesis chapter uh, 24 today. So let's look at the passage before us. And it says the following. What took place? How did Esau give up all that was his? What did he do? Well, once when Jacob, his brother, was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now let's stop there. Here's Esau, and he's running his race. And what Esau does is he takes his eyes off of the finish line, the birthright of his father, and he forfeits it for a meal. Now, what does that have to do with the Hebrews, and what does that have to do for us today? The answer is, as we run our race, we are tempted to do a couple things. Write these down. They're not in your outline. Number one, we see that Esau lived in the moment. He lived in the moment. Now, Esau had been promised by his father all of the goods, all of the possessions, all of the privileges in the future. That wasn't good enough for Esau. He was hungry in the moment. And so instead of thinking about the future, he worried about the present, and he took care of a present want by forfeiting a future possession. He took the stew, he ate it, and in doing so, he gave his birthright to his brother. Now let's stop here. You and I forfeit our running in this race when we forego the future for the present. You see, we are to run the race marked out for us. Now, that race is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. There are going to be weights and sins that so easily entangle or ensnare or weigh you down. And you've got to look beyond those. You've got to throw those things off. Esau is the perfect cautionary tale of the one who did not throw off the weights and the sins that would trip him up in his race. And the reason why he didn't was because the moment was more important than the future. How many of us right now is our present more important than what God's promised in the future? How many of us are foregoing the blessings of God that he has promised for us in advance at a certain time and place, how many of us are giving up on those blessings because of sin or opportunities in the present? If so, we're running like Esau. Now the text tells us, notice in Hebrews, it tells us that Esau was also sexually immoral. And that is not seen in all of the Old Testament. So where is the writer of Hebrews getting this information? Well, if you look at rabbinical writing and rabbinical tradition, it was all over the place in rabbinical writing that Esau was a man of his appetites. That meant whatever his body wanted, he went after And so if his stomach was hungry, he fed it because his stomach was important. If his sexual desires were telling him to do something, uh, rabbinical writing says that he pursued all manner of sexual immorality uh, to fulfill the 
feelings and the desires in the present. And he did all of this. He let his appetites get the best of him. And as a result, he found himself disqualified in the end. So Jake, uh, I'm sorry, Esau, write this down, is an example that he pursued the world and he faltered. He is the picture of not running the race well. Now, what happens when we do it is we run this race with you or me in mind, okay, ourselves in mind. We feed, we care, we minister to ourselves as if we're God. We're the most important thing in the world. Whatever we want, whatever we desire, we give ourselves, all the while disqualifying ourselves from the future things that God has for us, the blessings, the rewards that God promises his people who run the race well. Now, as he does this, notice at the end of the text, he loses his way. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, after speaking of what Esau has done, he says, for you know that afterward, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What the writer is saying is, is that when the rubber met the road, when it was most needed, the things that Esau was looking forward to, he wasn't giving because he spent it in that moment. What is the author trying to say? Listen to me, my friends. He's warning us that if we live as if we are king, if we live as being the most important people, you will enjoy this life. Our friends, our neighbors, our unbelieving co-workers, all of them, they're living life for themselves, okay? And they're enjoying life. And in some ways, if you've been like me, in some ways they're enjoying life more than you're enjoying life, right? You look and you say, man, they really are, they've got it good. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. They may have it good. Esau had his belly filled in the moment. Esau had his sexual desires taken care of with his one-night stands. He was fulfilled in this life, but the problem is there is another life to come, and he is going to be gravely disappointed. Are you getting it? And so what Esau is, is he is a picture of going after the world and receiving the world only to when you stand before God to be ushered into a place called hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the reminder and what people are thinking now as they burn in hell is, I wish I would have lived for the future and not for the moment. Don't run your race like Esau. So who are we to run like? Let's go back to the top of the passage, all right? The top of the passage tells us about another individual. Now, we were introduced to this individual. Quite frankly, the whole book is about this individual. It's Jesus. We are to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus pursued God's will and he finished. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now the text tells us, consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The whole reason we are to look to Jesus is as we run this marathon, 
We're going to want to quit. We're going to want to give up. But Jesus is the example of not quitting, not giving up, and receiving what the, what the Father promised for him, the possession and the privilege of sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. That word consider, let's look at that word for a moment. That word consider means to focus in on, to look intently to. It is the idea of um, analyzing. In fact, if you were to look at um, an English translation of the Greek word, you would see that we get that word consider from the word analyze. We are to focus in on Jesus. We are to look intently into the life of Jesus. And in doing so, we're going to see a couple things. Just as we learned about Esau, he lived for the moment, and he let his appetites get the best of him. In Jesus, we see a couple other things. Number one, write this down, Jesus saw hardships, or obstacles, better put. Jesus saw obstacles as opportunities for holiness. So Jesus saw these hardships. Jesus endured trials and tribulations. Jesus endured a temptation from the devil himself. And what Jesus does is he takes every opportunity not to feed the desires of his flesh, not to go against the will or word of God, but he takes temptations and he brings glory to God by living according to the word of God, not the lies of the devil. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is in this midst of a great trial, we see that Jesus says, if it is your will for this cup to pass, then I'm okay with that. But if your plan and will, Father, is for me to endure this, which it was, then he says, then I'll do it. I'm going to obey you. You see, hardships in our life are not obstacles. They are opportunities to promote our holiness and the holiness God has created in us. And when we see that, it's beautiful. I've shared now twice this story, and I'll do it again. I am blown away by my friend Mario and Beth Arendang. Their son, if you don't know, he's our student ministries pastor, served here for almost 20 years, and Mario and Beth have had a pretty good life. That is until this last year when their teenage son was diagnosed with a rare type of cancer. And he's endured a lot of difficulties. He's been in the hospital a lot. If you've been at the church, we've been following and praying for and encouraging their family as Jack goes through this very difficult season. You talk with Mario and Beth and you know what you hear? We want God to move. What do you mean? To take away this thing? No, to teach us and to reveal himself to us, whatever he wants through this hardship. Wow. Wow. That's what it means to run like Jesus. Because what they're doing is saying, Lord, we know that you are using this for a reason. And so what we're going to do is we're not going to get angry. We're not going to get bitter. We're not going to get upset. We're going to trust you. You're a good God. You've got a good plan for our son. And even if things were to go bad, even in our life or their life, he, they would say, and Mari would tell you, this, it just makes us look to heaven even more. It's just more sweeter to see what God is going to do. Jesus models for us that we should pursue holiness. Now, notice this wasn't easy. It says that in our struggle against sin, we didn't struggle like Jesus who shed his own blood. The idea here is no matter how hard you and I have it, Jesus had it worse. And here's why. You would say, but wait a minute. 
Jesus' life, we don't know nothing about the first 30 years for the most part. And then he had three years of kind of ups and downs, but it wasn't too bad. But then he experienced really what is about three days of real pain and sorrow. Here's the problem. Jesus, before he put on flesh, was uh, in heaven, enthroned in splendor and glory, worshipped and attended to by myriads upon myriads of angels. And what did he do? He put on flesh. He made his dwelling among us. He was enduring trials, temptations, and difficulties, things that were totally foreign to the holy and righteous God. And he does so for you and I. Jesus endured more suffering than any of us did. And what that means is, is what Jesus teaches us. And that is that life is a race. Write this down. It's a race, not recreation. You see, Esau thought that life was about him, about his recreation, his health, his goodness, his, his appetites. Jesus said, I am living for the glory of the Father. I'm going to finish this race. And we've got to make a decision. Is life about our recreation or is it about the race that's marked out for us? That will change how you live your life, how you spend your time, how you spend your energies, how you spend your money. If you look at all that God has given you as a race for you to run instead of your recreation. Now, what I'm not saying, because right away you're saying, well, Pastor Tim says I can't have any fun. That's not true at all. But we have to funnel all that we do through this race metaphor illustration. We need to run like Jesus and not run like Esau. Now, How do you run like Jesus? The author then pivots and he reminds them of an exhortation that needs to be received by the people. If they're going to run well, then here's this charge. And notice what he says in verse 5 through 11. He says, and have you forgotten? It's like a coach or a parent or a teacher exhorting, strongly encouraging He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he quotes Proverbs, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there in whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and and we've respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Speaking of God there. For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time and it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness For at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now let's stop there. The author says, all right, if you're going to finish this race, you need to strengthen some things. You need to get involved in some things that are going to keep you from hitting the wall and when you hit the wall to know what to do. The answer is discipline. Well, what is godly discipline? Write this down. The definition's on the screen. We'll leave it there for you. God's discipline is the process 
where God applies pressure to guide and correct the believer towards holiness. The process where God applies pressure to your life and to my life to guide and correct the believer towards holiness. Now, we have seen discipline in all areas of life. The author uses the parent-child illustration. But discipline goes farther than that. I've experienced discipline in my life from teachers as a student, from coaches as an athlete, from bosses as an employee. I've experienced it um, in, in many ways. Others have experienced it in even broader ways than, <clears throat> than that. If you've been a soldier, you have been under the discipline of a commanding officer or some sort of drill sergeant. Now, discipline, write this down somewhere, is, it's got two different forms. There is formative discipline and there's corrective discipline. So formative discipline, let's talk in the, in the scenario of uh, parent to child. Parents, you're teaching your children and you're telling them there are things to do and things not to do. So uh, we need you to brush your teeth, brush your hair, pick up your clothes, clean your room, pick up after you eat, uh, be kind to people, all of these formative things. These are the things that you ought to do. You're telling your children that. Then after establishing all the things that would form the child up, there are times when the child doesn't do those things and corrective measures, whether timeouts or grounding or the taking of possessions or privileges away or even spanking, can come in based on the age appropriateness of the child you're dealing with. There's formative and there's corrective. On the f- field of athletics, I had coaches that would, we would practice and practice and practice, and there was formative, the X's and O's of the game. We would do the drills over and over again. And then when we had the game and we didn't do on the field or on the court what the coach had taught us to do, the coach would bring us back and we would run and run and run. <clears throat> Why? Because he wanted to correct in our mind that which we didn't do, where we weren't obedient to living it out. And that's true in every facet of our lives. There's formative and corrective discipline. Now, why is discipline necessary? Because discipline is the thing that is going to grow you up, it's going to gird you up into running the race well. We need others around us who are maybe a little farther in the race to help us run it well. And we need this discipline. And how does this discipline work? Well, this discipline in the spiritual life does a couple things for us. Number one, it, it convinces us that we are God's children. If God didn't care about us, if God was unconcerned with us, then he wouldn't care if we finished the race or not. God is infinitely concerned with our running of our race. He knows where we're struggling. He knows where we have issues. He knows we're tired. And he tells us to cast all of our anxieties, all of our burdens on him because he cares for us. So here's what I know. I was taught very young in the Badal house that someone was going to do the disciplining. My dad would tell me all the time, you're going to be disciplined by someone. It's going to either be me who loves you and cares for you and provides for you and wants 
all good in your life. It could be a teacher. It could be a coach. It could be a pastor. It could be all manner of people. It could be the next door neighbor who disciplines you. And then he said, or it could be the police. It could be the state who disciplines you. And my dad said once, you want me to discipline you. Why? Because my dad said, Tim, you know, I know you best. I love you more than any of those other people. I'm more invested. I've put more time and energy and money into your well-being. I'm your biggest fan. You want me to discipline you. Someone will discipline you. Esau is receiving the discipline of hell right now. People who will not place themselves under God's discipline will be disciplined. And what God is saying is, you want me, my child, to discipline you because I love you and I created you and I've walked with you and I sent my son Jesus to die for you and I've given you the Holy Spirit to live and intercede on your behalf. I've done all this and so place yourself under my discipline and you will know how much I truly love you. Can you, if you don't have kids, you won't fully understand this, but it wasn't until I had my kids that I fully understood the depths and the width of the love my parents had for me. And I remember when it dawned on me, sitting there going, oh my goodness, my dad and my mom cared for me as much as I care for Noah, Josh, and Luke. Wow. Because God's so invested, he wants you to run the race well. Now, here's the thing. Discipline is painful. The author says that it's not pleasant. Boy, he could have put that a different way. It's painful. It hurts. It's difficult. There was not a singular time that I sat there when my parents grounded me or my parents uh, spanked me or did whatever that I was like, yay, this is great. This is awesome. One day, at one time I had done something dumb with the car and my parents grounded me from the car for four months, okay? Now in the moment, like Esau, I thought it was great. That is until my mom had to drive me to my prom dates, okay? And I wasn't like, wow, mom, no other kid or his junior prom has his mom drive you to the date. This is great. As the group of kids, as I'm getting out of my mom's car for pictures, I didn't say the discipline was fun. But you know, I look back and I'm so glad they did it. I'm so glad I had parents who loved me enough to deal with the stupidity of a teenager and address it, and as Barney Five says, nip it in the bud, when they did, even though it meant, and, and here's the thing, when you get disciplined, you know parents, and I just want you to know it happens in every home, it happens in the pastor's home, it probably happened in your home growing up, because we all do it at some point, we look at our parents, we look to the one who disciplines and we say, we hate you, I hate you, I hate you, you've ruined my life. Nobody else gets a discipline like this, by the way. That's not true, amen? Amen? Everybody's house is disciplining their kids, amen? That's for the teenagers over here. I won't even look at them, all right? All right? 
They're all getting disciplined. You know, I always hear, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. Okay, help me out, folks. You're not the only one. Okay? We will say to God, I hate you, God. How dare you do this to me? How dare you bring this trial and tribulation? That's why the writer says, do not regard, don't disregard or regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved by him. So two things will happen when we're disciplined by God. We'll become indifferent to it, and that's in essence, you can do whatever, and just notice, just put in your mind a teenager, okay, because this is what I did. Mom, Dad, you can do whatever you want. I don't care. That is being indifferent to the discipline of God. But some of us are intimidated by the discipline so much that we look at God as this hammer just hammering us down as nails. And we say, God, you're not being kind to me. You don't love me. You don't care for me. And God is saying, I love you. I care for you. Do not turn away from this exhortation. It is painful, but it produces fruit. It produces fruit. Now, it's got to be embraced to be effective. The author says we can't be indifferent. We can't be intimidated by it. We've got to receive it. So if you want to grow, if you want to not hit the wall in running this marathon, you need to embrace the suffering, the trials and tribulations, and yes, even the temptation the allow, that God allows the devil to bring into our lives. And you've got to say, God, I'm taking it because I want this to make me better, not bitter. So how do we let suffering uh, work in our favor in running the race? Number one, let suffering humble you. Let suffering then give you an appetite for heaven. Why? Because in heaven there is no suffering. There is no more trials or tribulations. Let suffering remind you of what Christ suffered for you and how much he loved you and how much he endured for you. And allow suffering to give you the opportunity to take up your cross and to bear it. You see, he uses Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 as a reminder. And notice what the writer says. The most important discipline that you have is God's word. Look at verse five. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he quotes the Bible. You are formatively being disciplined right now as you open the word, as you sit. You could be a million other places right now doing a million other things, but you've said to listen to God and his word is important and God is going to use it to bless you and you're running. But they're still tired. They're still weary. So that let me just close with this. The writer gives some encouragement to help us rally. In the race, there are tables at each of the mile markers where a runner can grab a cold glass of water. He can drink the water. He can spray his face with water. He can stop and fix his shoes. He can get some help along the way. There are these checkpoints along the way. And the writer of Hebrews, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows that the runners in the Hebrews are tired and they're hurting. And so along this marathon, there's these encouragement tables along the way, and here's one of them. So he goes on in verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, 
and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, and then afterward uh, he, he sought it with tears and, and never got it. That's how the passage ends. What are the encouragements along the way? The first encouragement is, as you run your race, never forget that hope is on the horizon. Well, you're like, where is that in the text? In verses 12 and 13, the writer quotes Isaiah 35. Now, you don't have, we don't have time to go to Isaiah 35. Write that passage down. You will see right from the beginning that Isaiah 35 is all about things stink in the moment, in the present, but they're going to get a whole lot better in the future. The desolate become bountiful. The barren become gardens. That which is broken becomes fixed. That which is tired gets filled with energy and all that's need to go. And the idea here is God has a plan. God has a future. So we're running this race with difficulty and struggles. And God says, keep running, knowing that what I have in store for you will be worth all of the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the difficulty when you hit the finish line. You'll run like Esau, you'll get it in the moment, but you will dread the day that you ever traded the future blessings of God for temporal blessings in this world. And so we need to recognize as we run, God has something for us. Jesus told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And when that place is being done, being prepared for, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me forever. And so as runners, we look to heaven. We look to fellowship with Jesus. We look to a place where there's no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, where the old things are gone. We look to the day where we will never sweat anymore, where we'll never cry anymore, where we'll never deal with sin anymore. And on that great and glorious day, won't you be glad you ran the race marked out for you? And so what the writer is saying is, look, on the horizon is the finish line, and I can't tell you how awesome it's going to be when you cross it. Now, in the time being, he gives two more words. One, live at peace with people. Live at peace with people. Why? Because he knows us better than we know ourselves. When we're tired, when we're weary, when we're hurting, we're going to lash out. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're running this race together, and what will happen is when the troubles come our way, we will begin to lash out to the runners next to us. So live at peace with them. Be at peace with them. Now, why? Notice what the author says, and I'll finish with this, in verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet. The idea here is mark your path. Mark your, uh, your uh, race, the, the path that you're running. Why? Because you need to be a benefit to those who are beside you. And then if you would do a slash and behind you. Why do we run our race? Why do we want God's discipline to make us run better? Because those who are running alongside of us need to see what it's like to run the race well. And an encouragement to me, I got three runners behind me, Noah, Joshua, and Luke. And they need to know what it's like to run the race well. And they're watching dad, and they're seeing dad, not perfectly, 
by any stretch of the imagination, but hopefully faithfully running the race. And then by, by a greater extension, I've got a church that's watching me, whether you guys run beside me, you're watching your pastor, how's he running his race? I've got employees in my company, they're watching me run my race. I've got customers that I serve, they're watching me run my race. I've got community members watching. How is Badal running this race? Is he living for himself or is he living for this God that he keeps talking about? And so what we are called to do is to look to Jesus all the while we're running because Jesus has promised great and precious promises for those who will run the race well. And as I look to Jesus, he's going to correct and guide me along the way so that I run the race that's marked out for me with endurance so that those who run beside me and those who run behind me have an example to follow as I imitate Christ. So the author is saying, run your race towards Jesus. Don't live like Esau, and you will receive the greatest celebration when you hit the finish line. Amen? And that's what God is wanting to teach us in this text. And my prayer is that we would take it and we would apply it. And when we grow tired and weary, and I know some of you are tired and weary, that you would see God has got you and he's going to get you to the finish line. And when you get there, you're going to say it was all worth it.